1: Welcome to this CNBC special. I'm Mike Santoli. Jim Cramer is off tonight. Another volatile session for the markets as investors are left to hang on for the ride. The Dow swinging nearly 650 points from high to low today before closing up about a quarter percent well off its highs of the day. The S&P also eking out a gain but still closing below the 4000 level. The Nasdaq leading the gains closing up one percent. As investors try to make sense of the roller coaster action tonight, we'll help you find opportunities in it all. Coming up, social media showdown, TikTok CEO testifying on Capitol Hill as multiple states take action against it. Others, meanwhile, calling the hearing the next red scare. We have the latest and the implications for the rest of social media. Uh, plus, chopping block, a short seller, takes aim at the company formerly known as Square, what it means for fintech going forward and making a move in movies. Apple announcing a $1 billion push into the silver screen. As the entertainment race heats up, we'll find out who stands to benefit. But we start with today's major market reversal. Uh, Let's bring in our market panel, New Street Advisor, CEO, and CNBC contributor Delano Sapporo, iCapital's chief investment strategist Anastasia Amorosa, and uh, EY Parthenon's chief economist, Gregory Daco. Welcome uh, to you all. And uh, boy, it has been choppy, uh, Anastasia. I, w- I wonder how uh, you're trying to pull a message out of uh, out of what the market has been doing here. Just a few weeks ago, we were worried about runaway bond yields to the upside. The Fed was going to have to get so more hawkish. The, the economy might be overheating. It's completely turned around. 10-year ten ten yield at a six-month low. And we're worried about uh, the economy suffering from a credit crunch uh, as we price in some Fed rate cuts. So, Where does it leave you as an investor at this point?
2: Sure, Mike. Well, there has been so many reversals in the last few weeks and just really in the last 24 hours. And it's interesting because first, the market reaction to what I call a de facto Fed pause, if not the end of the hiking cycle, it was a positive one, but then it got derailed by, you know, statements from uh, from, from Janet Yellen around deposits. And but when we came in again, uh, and the markets once again this morning, when the markets once again focused on the fact that the Fed is nearing its terminal rate of five point one percent. So I think that's the most important message. And this outperformance that we've seen in the Nasdaq and the tech trade, I suspect, can actually continue because if we're in fact done with rate hikes. That's a positive for valuations. And if we do see a slowdown further in the economy uh, due to the credit uh, tightening in banks, that means that it's back to the growth trade. It's back to where you can actually find reliable growth and its tech. So I think the moves of the market so far in March have actually been the correct ones, given what's going on.
1: All right. So maybe there's a bit of, uh, of logic to it. Greg, I love your, your thoughts on whether, in fact, Uh, we can kind of navigate this economic landscape right here without really tipping over into uh, something a little bit scarier. In fact, on that score, we do have some uh, comments today from uh, from Gary Cohn, uh, a a former NEC director, about the prospects for a soft landing. Now that the Fed has
0: lost control, it is more difficult when the Fed was in control of slowing down the economy by raising rates and just making it more expensive, I felt like we could maneuver a soft landing. Now that we're just taking money out of the system and we're, con- and we're really taking loan availability away, it's not loan availability at any cost, it's just loan availability yep. at, uh, is gone. I think the ability to soft land gets more difficult.
1: Greg, do you buy that? Do you think that the economy has uh, more resilience to it than that?
3: I think the economy is undeniably slowing. Uh, We are in an environment where uh, we had already seen some slowdown in terms of economic momentum, whether it's business investment, employment growth or even consumer spending. They're all slowing. There's no massive retrenchment. uh, But the current conditions where we're seeing tighter credit conditions and tighter financial conditions are undeniably going to weigh on economic activity. The one thing I am concerned about is this disconnect, massive disconnect right now, between markets pricing as many as four rate cuts before the end of this year and the Fed saying that it does not anticipate any rate cuts. It's going to have to readjust either to the upside or to the downside. And I think to some extent, that points to the lack of a firm anchoring of Fed policy in the current environment. Excessive data dependence is a very risky position in this type of extremely volatile macro environment.
1: Well, I mean, to that point, uh, Greg, I mean, we have the two year note yield uh, around 3.84. it's a full percentage point below where the Fed funds rate is. I mean, historically, when you've had that kind of upside down setup, uh, it usually has meant tough things for the economy. It usually has meant that the Fed was likely headed for easing no matter what they've said about it, because I I don't suppose they're ever really going to preview their intention to do a 180 and switch from hiking to easing, are they?
3: No, they're not going to preview any form of easing uh, right now because they are still very much concerned about the inflation uh, environment being too hot and the labor market being too tight. That was the the message that we received from Powell yesterday. Uh, In noting that there may be some additional tightening, uh, very uh, dovish words that were used, uh, the Fed Chair Powell also insisted that he did not foresee any rate cuts. But I think that dissociation between the current state of Fed policy and its intent with regards to inflation, with regards to the labor market, and what markets are pricing is a massive disconnect that will end up in some significant repricing, either to the upside, if markets essentially believe that the Fed will maintain rates at a higher level, or to the downside, if the Fed eventually ends up cutting rates. But I think to some extent, we'll find room in the middle, and there will be some repricing that's necessary in the current environment.
1: Delano if this is if we're basically destined to tip into recession in the, in the coming months, it will have been anticipated for well over a year right I mean the markets have been kind of living with this prospect for for a while right now, and arguably did a lot of work to to price in uh, some measure of it, right? The S&P went down 27%. The S&P has gone nowhere in two years. Uh, You've actually seen some of the economically sensitive groups start to fall away uh, in in, in recent months. So where does it leave you as an investor in trying to figure out whether the market is still vulnerable here uh, to a worse economy or if we can power through? Yeah, Mike, it's tough for investors right
4: now. You, you really have two sides of things, right? You have, obviously, the risk-free rates that have risen, and that looks attractive to some people that want to have cash safe um, and obviously ready to be available. And then you have investors that are looking at equities and looking at where yield is right now, right? So you have yield roughly at 5.85%, um, you're looking at yield that's not so much more attractive than the risk-free rate now. If, if you're looking at earnings, which have come down, earning estimations, which have come down, um, you can look at that. And if your investors say, all right, there's two reasons why I'd be investing um, in equities and stocks right now. It's one, if I believe the revisions of earnings that have come down are a little bit too bearish um, and earnings might end up being better based on what companies have been doing to right size their costs and to fix their cost structuring, right? And so that would mean that yield will be a little bit higher and you get more for your dollar investing in the market right now. The other reason would be if you do believe um, there'll be some sort of pivot um, coming sooner rather than later. Based on the most recent Fed statements, they've taken out um, some of the language that said that they may not um, pause or pivot. And so that might be a reason for investors. So those are two reasons that hinge on if investors would find the equities markets is attractive right now, because it is roughly two, two paths right now. It's, it's disinflation and a weaker demand um, and, and really a pullback of equities. Or we do have some sort of area where we pivot and the valuation for growth and a lot of other things look a lot better.
1: Uh, Anastasia, I mean, you you said you thought that this kind of uh, uneven market where you do have the big growth stocks winning or being able to retain their value and then you have, you know, the rest of the market. I mean, the banks uh, look pretty, uh, pretty sick at this point, at least in terms of stock price. Right. Regional banks down some 30 percent year to date, 40 percent off their highs. Uh, On the other hand, Microsoft, I think it's up, you know, 11 percent this month alone. NVIDIA up 17 percent this month. I wonder how much longer you can expect that relationship to get stretched between uh, winners and losers.
2: Yeah, Mike, it's a great point because this degree of outperformance that we're seeing in tech versus some of the cyclicals is now, I think, on par with what we saw in, uh, coming out of March of 2020. So you can say, OK, that's really stretched. But if you think back to that time, that outperformance has actually continued for some time. And I can see this happen this time around as well, because, look, the fact of the matter, banks are a little bit sick-ish, you know, given what's going on in the macro economy. And the reason I say that, it's not just an idiosyncratic issue one, two, three, but the broader issue is that the funding costs for banks are rising, depositors are looking to park their cash elsewhere. And as a result, banks are having to risk manage their portfolios, and they're going to take less risk. So they're going to issue less loans. They're going to try to get steeper margins on those loans. But bottom line is the net interest income, the peak of that for banks has passed. And that creates kind of a negative backdrop for the banking sector. But then on the flip side, if this you know tightening in credit conditions is interpreted by the Fed to say that's actually tightening uh, in lieu of interest rates and we're going to pause uh, hiking rates, that's great news for technology. And once again, if you look at global IT spending, for example, this year is projected to grow five percent, which is a step up from last year. And if within that, if you look at the software spending, it's projected to be double that overall number, you know, ten or eleven percent. So all of a sudden, if you can't rely on the cyclical trade anymore, you're gonna find you're gonna try to find growth, growth elsewhere. And again, tech is where the growth is. So Mike, I can see this continue for some time. And you know, for investors, it's kind of interesting right now because you can hide out in cash. You can hide on cash equivalents. You can try to get yield elsewhere so you can be defensive, but you could also try to buy these dips in tech along the way as well.
1: Right. So the yield can can provide a cushion to other stuff uh, you might own, I suppose. Um, Greg, I... Obviously, we have oil that's been struggling. Uh, You have this uh, credit scarcity that we're expecting out there. Can we start to take comfort that inflation has some downside momentum as a bit of a silver lining? And I know the Fed's not going to say we've won uh, the war against inflation, but I wonder if right now it seems as if uh, we can get uh, inflation back down toward target uh, sooner than we might have expected.
3: I think that's very much a possibility. We are in an environment where we're starting to see some increased evidence of disinflation. Uh, If you look at wholesale price inflation, it's slowing materially. If you look at uh, import prices, they're actually declining. If you look at home prices, they're declining. If you look at inflation expectations, they're also on the decline. So all of these factors, in my opinion, point to an environment where disinflation will gather momentum over the course of this year. I've long argued that the Fed has the room right now to pause and perhaps consider towards the back end of this year and into next year some recalibration of policy. But that's not likely what the Fed will do. And in adopting a dual track approach where it uses monetary policy to address the high inflation environment that it perceives and its macroprudential tools to address the financial stability concerns. I think we're likely to be in an environment where the Fed maintains a tight stance and perhaps goes one more rate hike before it pauses mm-hmm. and holds at an elevated level. That's not what markets are pricing in, but I think that is likely to be the environment that increases the odds of a recession as we navigate through yeah. the rest of the year.
1: Yeah, would be a fairly classic uh, overshoot in that respect if it does happen that way. Greg, uh, Anastasia uh, Delano, thanks so much. Appreciate the time, Stephen. Thank you. All right, we're just getting started on this CNBC special, Taking Stock.
5: Tonight, ticked off. Is the red scare of a new generation already here? Plus, chopping block? Why the next big short may be found in FinTech. And don't retreat, but shuffle your feet. Check your strategy after we check the charts when Taking Stock returns.
1: Welcome back. A contentious hearing today on Capitol Hill. Members of Congress grilling the CEO of TikTok as the app faces the possibility of a ban by lawmakers. According to reporting from The Washington Post, senior Biden administration officials do not believe they have the legal authority to ban TikTok without an act of Congress. A Julia Borston has been following the story. So, Julia, uh, how does this fit into the mix?
7: Well, it's interesting because it, even without a full-on ban, if uh, CFIUS, if the U.S. government forces um, a sale of TikTok's U.S. assets by its Chinese parent company, then that could, in many ways, amount to a ban because. It could effectively force the Chinese government, the Chinese company to say, we don't want a U.S. company to own our algorithm. So that becomes complicated there. Um, But I have to say, no matter what happens, it could be held up in the courts for quite some time. Um, But one thing is for sure, uh, Mike, TikTok CEO Shou Chu was under attack in two very key areas when he was testifying today. First was the app's negative impact on teens. In particular, um, a number of members of Congress raised concerns that the app incur- could encourage suicide, eating disorders, and the like. The second issue was risks around its Chinese ownership uh, when it comes to the security of U.S. user information and also p- potential manipulation um, of users on the platform by the Chinese government. Take a listen to how CEO Shou Chu addressed those concerns.
0: Prior to today's hearing, did anyone affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party discuss this hearing with you or anyone else on TikTok senior management?
5: Congressman, since I've been CEO of this company, I've not had any discussions with Chinese government officials.
7: TikTok issuing a statement this afternoon saying, quote, show came prepared to answer questions from Congress, but unfortunately, the day was dominated by political grandstanding that failed to acknowledge the real solutions already underway through Project Texas or productively address industry-wide issues of youth safety. Now, TikTok and its CEO today stressed that not only do 150 million Americans use TikTok, but also, there are 5 million businesses who connect with consumers on the platform. Guys?
1: You know, Julia, it's fascinating. Is it your sense that the competitor social networks, the platforms based in the U.S., welcome this kind of very aggressive scrutiny of, uh, of TikTok and the threat to its existence here? Or is it just, you know, look, a lot of these issues that the congressmen were talking about today maybe also apply to them?
7: Look, if TikTok were to be shut down, if its ability to operate were to be dramatically limited or or impacted, that would be a win for these other platforms. I mean, we have seen YouTube, Meta, its platform with Reels. You've seen it with Snap. These platforms have all really embraced the short form video format that TikTok really pioneered. So if TikTok were to be shut down or become less appealing or operate more slowly, then you would see more more both consumers and also businesses move over to those other platforms. So that would certainly be a win. But it is notable that today there was a lot of conversation about the importance of maybe revising Section 230. Now, Section 230 um, protects platforms, these tech platforms, for being liable for content that's shared on their platform. So if there was revision of that and there was more accountability, that could be challenging for the likes of a meta or a Twitter. So I think there is a mixed bag here. But the fact that it is a Chinese company, ByteDance, that owns TikTok, I think was really driving a lot of the conversation. And that kind of focus is something that I think is actually a win for the U.S.-based companies.
1: Yeah. And certainly investors acting uh, as if that's the case with uh, pushing up those stocks as we just saw. Julia, thank you very much. Our next guest wrote a piece for The New York Times this week titled How to Fix the TikTok Problem, calling today's hearing, quote, part of a larger red scare. Julia Angwin is an investigative journalist, and she's also the author of Dragnet Nation, A Quest for Privacy, Security and Freedom in a World of Relentless Surveillance. Julia, uh, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us tonight. Um, why, why are you not comfortable with this particular uh, approach or level of scrutiny that TikTok is receiving, in particular. Well,
8: it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I um, I think the thing we have to remember is that nearly everything TikTok is being accused of is something that U.S. tech platforms have already done. It doesn't make it okay, but it does highlight how TikTok is being singled out, and it's a reminder that Congress has failed to pass data protection laws to protect our information from being exploited, which most other nations have done. Congress has not passed laws requiring tech companies to mitigate the harms enabled by their algorithms, which the EU has done. So to complain about da- TikTok's data usage and algorithms when we haven't regulated our own is a bit hypocritical. And that's what the TikTok CEO was pointing out.
1: I assume the the red scare uh, analogy that you bring up is because clearly it's, it's sort of um, a, a sort of anti-China uh, policy disguised as looking at the practices of one social platform?
8: I think you can't really look at this TikTok um, frenzy, which really is what it is right now, um, without putting it in the larger context, right? We are blowing up Chinese balloons. We're putting off trade restrictions on China. We're not going to ship them advanced chips because we don't want them to get ahead of us in AI. So there's definitely tension between the US and China. And I feel like there's no way to avoid the fact that that is part of the of the discussion here with TikTok, because otherwise, why would you single out TikTok for something that every other one of these platforms is also doing?
1: Sure. I, I mean, I suppose that the answer on their part would be that those other platforms are not offering access to whatever data potentially to Chinese authorities, to a foreign country.
8: Right. And well, TikTok has put in place um, a program that it says will wall off U.S. data from access by China. But I will say that today, actually, um, the TikTok CEO, there were some holes poked in that program that I think raised some significant questions, right? He admitted that they were only talking about data going forward, so new data collected about US citizens, not about what they'd already collected. And he also um, didn't have great answers for the one representative who was uh, himself a tech engineer who said, it doesn't sound like you actually have a plan that would make um, this data migration Um, as seamless as you're making it sound. And so I think we still have some questions about how well TikTok could wall off its data from China. And that's the promise that they're making to try to avoid being banned or forced into a sale. And they haven't fully made that case yet.
1: When it comes to the other social networks, I mean, There's always been this concern about uh, data utilization, the collection of it, how it's treated, how it's sold uh, and all the rest of it. And yet it doesn't seem as if that has tended to be a big swing factor in whether people choose to use it or offer up their data. Now, we do have the Apple uh, privacy settings. A lot of people have uh, taken advantage of those. But I I just wonder if this would be uh, expected to become an issue for representatives uh, in Congress when, in fact, the public doesn't seem to necessarily have a lot of energy behind that, uh, that position?
8: Well, I think it's actually really hard to not use these technologies, right? The companies say, look, people are choosing to give us their data and it's their choice. And so they don't care about privacy. But the reality is if you try to live your life without using modern technology, you are not going to be able to get a job, communicate with your child's school, you know, get um, any sort of order, any groceries or food during a pandemic. So we're at a point where using these technologies is actually kind of not optional anymore and so the right. argument that we've all chosen to give up our data i think doesn't hold water we have no option we have to participate in this economy that is really a, a wild west right there are no rules saying the companies, the apps that you use can't just sell off your location data and by the way many of them do right and so the fact that we have this unregulated data broker industry out there that we have just let rip means that we all operate in a world where our data isn't safe.
1: Yeah. Fair enough, Julia. Appreciate you uh, articulating it for us. Interesting. Thank you. All right. Coming up, fintech in focus with Coinbase and Block both sinking today. Block falling on a short seller's report. We'll dig into the claims when the CNBC special continues.
0: You seek the key.
1: Welcome back. Let's get to a special evening edition of Tech Check from our Deirdre Deirdre Bosa. Dee, good to see you.
9: Mike, so glad I could join you. Two Kathy Wood FinTech stocks taking it on the chin today Block and Coinbase. Hindenburg Research, the short seller behind Nicola and Adani's fall, put out a big report this morning alleging that Block allows criminals to operate with lax controls and inflates Cash App's performance. Take a look at this chart. Block became a Wall Street darling, largely due to the success of that Cash App. PayPal's Venmo pioneered a new simpler interface for peer-to-peer payments, but it was Square's Cash App that seemed to come out of nowhere, climbing the App Store charts, better profitability, and this cool factor that became a kind of phenomenon in hip-hop culture. Hindenburg, though, says that Block won those advantages through flawed and murky means. Founder and CEO Jack Dorsey, he often talks about his mission to serve the under and the unbanked. Hindenburg says, yeah, that's true, but they embraced a specific segment of the underbanked. That would be criminals. Dorsey often points to how hip hop artists rap about the cash app. Hindenburg points out that those songs often talk about how they use the cash app and scams to traffic drugs, even pay for murder. Now, the short seller also knocks its profitability, saying that it's fueled by avoiding a key banking regulation meant to protect merchants. Also points to accelerated losses at Afterpay post-Block's $29 billion acquisition. So Block responded pretty hard, quote, We intend to work with the SEC and explore legal action against Hindenburg Research for the factually inaccurate and misleading report they shared about our cash app business today. Hindenburg is known for these types of attacks, it says, which are designed solely to allow short sellers to profit from a declining stock price. Um, Now, as I mentioned, Nikolai and Adani were other investigations from the firm that did result in share prices staying lower. Coinbase, meanwhile, uh, was the other story in fintech today. It was hit by the prospect of potential securities charges around an unspecified portion of its listed digital assets. And, Mike, if I'm going to try and take something out of both these stories, really, it's that they speak to the disruption that fintech has promised for years, that I've covered for years, and how that may not ultimately work out in their favor. And especially at this moment, it feels like um, people are questioning their valuations, of course, as well, because of some of these so-called disruptions that haven't really shaped up.
1: That's right, and, and in fact, as I mentioned before, it, it is in the downturn seems more fin than tech. I mean, it's kind of the old business, and they've tried to make uh, something new about it. Now, the other thing that strikes me that does seem to unify these companies, aside again from them both being uh, big holdings of Kathy Wood and Ark, is they sort of reflect or embody that that kind of startup. Like, look, let's grow. Let's do what we can to grow. There might be some regulatory constraints around here Mm -hmm. somewhere, but we're just going to have to get big and worry about that later. And in fact, with Coinbase, you've heard some comments by them saying, look, the rules weren't clear from the SEC. So we just kind of, you know, allowed these things to list on our platform.
9: Mike, the age-old adage here in Silicon Valley, move fast and break things, right? That's still very much part of the ethos here. And that's what sort of Brian Armstrong, which you're referring to, the CEO of Coinbase, kind of striking back hard and saying we need to do these things. Um, And the regulators are getting in the way, and that could set back a whole industry. Um, But that's a lot of what people are talking about now, that adage, move fast and break things. Does that work in this kind of environment when markets, investors are caring more about profit than they are about that top line disruptive growth?
1: Yeah. And we are about two years into that reckoning process, I guess. I guess the other uh, yeah. saying is, uh, you know, it's better to seek forgiveness than ask permission. That's what these, uh, these companies in some ways uh, sought to do. Uh, Dee, great to talk to you. Thanks so much. All right. Let's talk more about Block, which closed down almost 15 percent today. Dan Dolan from Mizuho upgraded the stock to a buy last week. He joins us now. Dan, um, just give me your evaluation of some of the claims in the Hindenburg report. It's a mix of, you know, actual allegations about inflated uh, user uh, counts and things like that, as well as some anecdotal stuff uh, about, you know, uses, perhaps uh, illicit uses of the cash app.
10: Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, we upgraded last week. Again, we didn't upgrade on the cash app, we upgraded on profitability. That still stands. Uh, our you know concerns about the cash app still stand too. But let me tell let me talk a little bit about the allegations. So the main thing, or I guess the most important allegation is like how many of the 50 million monthly average users are actually used for, you know, drugs, sex trafficking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's actually a very, very small portion. Like I can't imagine there's that many drug dealers in America, right? So I actually think that there's a lot of unsubstantiated stuff in this uh, short report, and the proof is in the pudding. Gross profit or revenue is kosher, and it's very strong. So I think there's a lot of allegations there about the songs and what Didri was mentioning, which I think are completely, um, you know, false.
1: You know, there was some commentary, and you sort of uh, get to this as well, that a lot of the issues, perhaps not particularly new to investors who who have followed the company and have been invested in the company. And maybe it's uh, sort of practices that are uh, common in the industry to some degree in terms of peer-to-peer payment networks. You're going to attract all types. On the other hand, the stock was down 15% today on 140 million shares. That's like 12 times normal volume. It strikes me that something in here – uh, struck people as new, or at least worth acting on. Whether it might be the fact that it could just invite regulatory scrutiny that might not otherwise have been there.
10: I think you're right. I think it's two things here. First, it's the you know fear of regulatory scrutiny regarding interchange rules. Right. Remember, they have to keep under the stay under 10 billion in AOM with Sutton Bank to be under the uh, to to receive uh, unregulated unregulated interchange, which is like. You know 30 40 percent of gross profit of the cash app but i think more the reason the stock was down today is not because what's what was in the report but what wasn't in the report which is there weren't that many numbers some of the numbers were inaccurate and i think that people are worried again like if they had actually put real numbers in the report if you understand my logic i don't think the stock would have been down that much there was a lot of you know hearsay there was a lot of like you know huffing and puffing about songs uh, i it, it was it, to me it was somewhat sensational i have to be i have to be honest
1: yeah, I mean, there's no doubt it was written to be provocative and to get attention, obviously. And that's the way that Hindenburg has tended to do things. They did have a pretty good uh, you know, hit rate or, or, or track record uh, in the handful of, uh, of situations we know about. However, there was some stuff about, you know, uh, former employees saying that some of the kind of fraud uh, losses might be hidden in sales and marketing. So, in other words, there was uh, allegations about accounting practices in, in addition
10: Right. And, and you want to hear the, the, actually the funniest things that I think people didn't pay attention to. I think, if I remember correctly, they said that, you know, high percentage, like 40, 50 percent of uh, accounts that there were that were reviewed for fraud were actually fraud. Shouldn't it be 100 percent? Aren't these accounts the accounts that you want? So what they're basically telling you is that the compliance department of Block or Square, I mean, I keep calling it Square, uh, yes. is actually doing a good job. So There's a lot of things that are are weird. I think the reason for the 15 percent is the good reputation that Hindenburg had with different calls that they made. And I think that scared Mm -hmm. a lot of people.
1: Right now, fair enough. Yeah, presumably that wasn't just a random sampling of of accounts uh, investigated for fraud. I want to get a quick word from you, if I could, on Coinbase. Uh, obviously, different situation, but, you know, been had a, a bit of a regulatory cloud hanging over it at this point. But also, I guess, a lot of concern about just volumes on the platform and, and the fees. And it doesn't seem to have a way out of, uh, uh, you know, of, of essentially burning cash for a little while.
10: Yeah, I think very different from uh, Square. Coin is in real trouble, Right if what we think is going to materialize and we published on it today almost a third of revenue 30 35% of revenue could get wiped out so if altcoins are banned if and i'm not even talking ethereum if staking is banned that wipes out revenue they're going to burn so much cash i don't think how much i don't even know how many quarters they could stay alive if this actually were to happen plus retail is dead no one on the retail side is actually trading crypto it's all institutional it's that are trading at a very low take rates. Um, and USDC is falling apart. You know, volumes on USDC are down market cap is like down like 10, 15 percent from where it was like a week and a half ago, which means that the net interest income that they're earning is going away. So I think it's like the perfect storm.
1: Fascinating. Yeah, it, uh, it's it, it's very interesting. And it's kind of diverged from the Bitcoin price, which has picked up recently. It's just not going to the benefit. Uh, of Coinbase at this point. Dan, uh, thanks so much. Appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. All right. Well, don't go anywhere. There's much more ahead on this CNBC special, Taking Stock.
5: Coming up, taking a breath. What the charts are telling us about this wild market. Plus, a golden not-so-oldie, eyeing a 24 karat flight to safety, and... Coming to a theatre near you, can Apple's movie magic make bushels for theatre stocks when
1: Taking Stock returns? Welcome back. Let's take another look at how the markets ended the day. The major averages all ending positive, uh, the only after some choppiness in the late afternoon. Uh, You see the Dow uh, is up a quarter of a percent now on pace to snap a two week losing streak, while the S&P and the Nasdaq are on pace for their second positive week in a row. It has been exactly three years since the covid bottom. And while the S&P is 18% off of its uh, early 2022 highs, the index still up about 76% since the low of March 2020. And take a look at Bitcoin soaring over $1,000 today despite the steep drops in crypto-related stocks, Coinbase and Block, uh, the actual cryptocurrency uh, diverging to the upside from those stocks. For more on where the markets are headed, we're taking a look at the technicals. Let's dig deeper with Jessica Inskip, director of product and education at Options Play. And Jessica, great to have you. Uh, I. I Given the news flow recently and really for the past couple of months, I think a lot of folks might be surprised that the s and up year to date. We're almost a quarter of the way through the year. Uh, it's got about a, almost three percent return. Now, it's taken a lot of energy, it seems, to do that because it's a handful of stocks recently uh, doing the work. How do the charts appear to you in terms of you know whether we are in, uh, in an uptrend from October or if this uh, bear market's going to resume?
11: Yeah, I think it's certainly really interesting. So if we take a look at the S&P 500 on a weekly level, so the current support area is actually around 3,700, which represents the 200 weekly moving average, which is what we breached to mark those October lows, which was around 3,500. Now, we need to see an upwards trend in the moving averages, looking at the 26 week and the 40 weekly moving averages. As that's reversing from a downwards trend to an upwards trend, that needs confirmation with consistent closes above those levels, which the 40 week is is 39.40. So the S&P 500 is barely doing that, having a very hard time. Now, I think it's really interesting, Mike, pointing out technology and the NASDAQ 100 and looking at that same type of chart, because that's certainly what's been fueling the rally. Like you said, a handful of stocks absolutely helping push that upwards momentum. The NASDAQ 100 has already consistently closed above its 20 and, or, excuse me, 26 week and 40 week moving averages. But it has its next resistance point around um, that it's not, it's having a hard time overcoming and actually closed right below that today. So what that tells me is since the NASDAQ or the NASDAQ 100 and the larger technology actually fueled the rally, it's the only thing that's helping the S&P 500 come above that really important support level to have that base case that as technology looks like it's about to retract in which case we risk going lower which of course will translate over and need some economic data or even earnings season as it comes up and so much going on that will push that momentum on either level.
1: Yeah, and it's quite a, a switch, obviously, from the character of the market last year, when it was the downside leadership was for the most part the really large Nasdaq stocks, mostly in uh, in tech. So, if are we seeing uh, the signs that there's actually a reversal in that dynamic at this point, or can we uh, even say if it's if it's trending in that direction? Because it seems as if in both cases, Nasdaq 100, S and P, we're kind of stuck in this testing zone to sort of sort out exactly uh, who has more influence here, the buyers or the bears?
12: Yeah,
11: absolutely. And if you look at the comparison of the S&P 500 versus the NASDAQ 100, the NASDAQ 100 actually peaked first in November um, of the previous year. And then the S&P 500 peaked about 30 days later. And then if you go to that really key support level, which is the 200 weekly moving average, the NASDAQ 100 breached that prior to the S&P 500. And they both hit those lows really together collectively close at the same time. Now, what I think is interesting about that and things that we've been talking about consistently is its technology. If you think of a restrictive Fed policy, all of the layering and domino effect and how it, it hits tech first because of, of you know the lack of IPOs that started on the NASDAQ, profit margin pressure. So we saw layoffs within the tech sector. So perhaps all of those um, needs from a fundamental perspective translated over from that restrictive Fed policy first, causing a lead in a decline and now a subsequent lead in the rally. But I think it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out now with a credit crunch imminent.
1: Yes, and exactly, and whether that sort of uh, scrambles the, uh, the equation a little bit uh, one way or the other. Jessica, appreciate it. Thanks for running those, uh, through those with us. Thank you. All right, coming up, check out this chart. Up almost 9% this month in a volatile tape. Have investors spotted a golden opportunity? We'll reveal what it is when the CNBC special returns. Welcome back. That mystery chart we showed you before the break, it is gold. Gold prices breaking back above $2,000 an ounce today before ultimately settling at $19.95. That's the highest settle since March of last year. The commodity is now up more than 9% year-to-date. Our Seema Modi joins us now with a look at where the commodity could go from here and what the price moves are saying about the market. Seema, it's uh, very rarely in Thousands of years of history have been at a higher price than it is right now, as a matter No,
12: of fact. that's a great point. And, you know, as investors sort of size up the risk in the banking sector and wrestle with the uncertainty around the direction of this economy, gold continues to shine, closing just below 2,000 today, now on pace for its fourth positive week in a row, and outperforming U.S. equities so far this year. Goldman Sachs joining other Wall Street firms and raising its 12-month price target to 2,050 an ounce from 1,950, writing that... ETF inflows and the wealth effect from the east, specifically China, will continue to provide support for the yellow metal. Keep in mind, the all-time high for gold was 2,075, hit back in August of 2020. This as we keep a close eye on the dollar, which really plays a big role in gold's outperformance. Remember, it was in mid-June 2022 when Fed Chair Jerome Powell admitted that tapering could happen. That sustained the dollar, which rallied all the way up to November 2nd of last year when Powell raised interest rates for the fourth time. After, for that, the dollar started to weaken, and that's when we saw bold move higher, gold move higher. If the Fed reverses course and keeps rates continuing to go higher, that, of course, could spell trouble for this trade, Mike.
1: For sure, uh, Seem. I've heard it argued that, um, you know, real interest rates, inflation adjusted rates seem to have a lot to say about whether gold performs well or not. They've been coming down uh, recently as well. And you mentioned the dollar index. I, I wonder if the news uh, in favor of gold has been so lopsided right now, we have to wonder what could uh, take it higher. Meaning, look, a Swiss bank needed to be rescued. That sure. seems like the kind of thing that people might get, uh, you know, react to by, uh, by purchasing gold. But it, it is sort of fascinating how it acts as almost uh, an anxiety gauge for wealthy investors.
12: And maybe to your point, it's the next CPI report on April 12th that will give us more clarity as to whether the Fed can in fact pause and not continue to raise rates higher and that perhaps then bolsters the the dollar or allows it to weaken further which helps the gold trade. Of course, we'll have to see how that plays out over the coming weeks.
1: For sure. And, you know, you mentioned the flows potentially coming from other parts of the world uh, into gold it has been pointed out that if you were looking at gold uh, in terms of other currencies, it's already been making uh, all time high. So I guess uh, it depends how you decide to, to, to take, keep score, so to speak. And
12: you wonder, too, if gold continues to move higher, if we start to see more mergers and acquisitions. There was Newmont, uh, which put in that $17 billion bid for Newcrest, which was ultimately rejected by the Australian gold miner. But if that could cre- perhaps spark more deals, um, if, again, prices move higher. Consolidation.
1: Absolutely. All right. For sure, Seema. Thanks so much. Thanks. All right, coming up, Netflix just had its best day of the year, soaring 9% today. But with news that Apple plans to spend a billion dollars to break into theaters, is there enough movie magic to go around? Grab your popcorn. We're bringing you that story next. Welcome back. Movie theater stocks spiking today with Cinemark ending the day up a whopping 5.8%. All on a report that Apple's planning to invest a billion dollars a year into theatrical releases contrary to a streaming only strategy or small runs in a handful of theaters. Our own Sarah Witten from CNBC.com has been following the story and joins us now, Sarah. So obviously this is a at least a small reversal in and in a big long-term trend away from theatrical releases. What's your read on what it means for Apple strategically and then for the industry?
13: Absolutely. I mean, Apple is doing this for a number of reasons. And uh, one is financially viable to go to theaters. Movies make money in theaters. Um, It also is a signal to Hollywood that, you know, they are here for content creators and for talent to put their work on the big screen. And it also showcases movies in the public eyes that people will come and subscribe to Apple TV Plus later on.
1: Yes. So that all fits together. And of course, I guess it's worth keeping in mind that um, a billion dollars to Apple is, uh, you know, just just a little token amount that they can spare on this effort with maybe some long term uh, goals in mind. But that's a not insignificant number of releases relative to how many uh, we've been getting uh, in theaters recently. Right.
13: Right. I mean, Amazon made a very similar commitment last year in November. It also said it was going to put in about a billion dollars a year, which it said would be 12 to 15 movies, which is a big deal right now, especially because in 2023, we have eight fewer wide releases than we did in 2019. So you're already seeing, you know, because we have that number of fewer of movies, you're seeing a smaller box office. We're down about 500 million from where we were in 2019 because we don't have those titles.
1: Now I'll just do a little bit of uh, of math here. So a billion dollars. Uh, what are they talking about? Twelve to fifteen movies a year. That's well under a hundred million dollars per film uh, in terms of budget. Yeah, these Is would be smaller budgeted
13: films. Uh, probably a right. few Oscar bait films. I mean, we saw Apple have that historic win this uh, last last year with Coda. Uh, so I mean, it's. There's a number of reasons why they're doing this, so, you know, not only do they get the prestige with the uh, Academy nominations, but also, you know, they can put out a number of different films, number of different genres and tap a lot of talent out there that's looking for a place to put their movies.
1: That is true, but it would be a test of whether, in fact, smaller non-franchise movies are going to really work, right? I mean, because that's been the big bonanza in theatrical releases. And therefore, when you see the theater stocks rally, I wonder just exactly how much uh, revenue there's really going to be driving down the road uh, for these stocks. In fact, today, Citi, I know, came out with a new report on AMC saying to sell the stock.
13: I mean, if you look at it, not all of these films are going to make $500 million at the box office. But if you have four of them do fifty million, or six of them do fifty million domestically, it does add up, and that's sort of what we're missing at the box office. So for sure, these films are not going to, you know, cost sixty million and make five hundred million. But if you add them together, that you know really does help at the end of the year and could push ticket sales for the annual box office up significantly.
1: For sure. Uh, well, we'll see how it uh, how it plays, uh, Sarah. Thanks so much. Good story. Of course. Thank
13: you so much, Mike.
1: All right. Uh, Take care. And that is going to do it uh, for us on Taking Stock. Last Call starts right now.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery,